Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we begin our final week of our series, Jesus Goes Global, with a message entitled, Have No Fear. So turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There's a line from Jesus, and it's recorded in Matthew 10, 26. Jesus simply says, so have no fear of them. Well, who's he talking about? Well, earlier on in the passage, he said, behold, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And Jesus was giving his disciples the command to go out and spread the good news of his kingdom. But as good as that news sounds, it will be met by a stiff and a harsh opposition. Now, by the time we get to the book of Acts, well, the apostles shouldn't have been surprised. Jesus had been crucified in that very city, and so we have to believe they weren't taken off guard. You know, if the message of Jesus would have stayed small and limited to but a few followers, I think they would have been tolerated. But since it was expanding so rapidly and it was impossible to contain it, Well, the Jewish authorities, and by the way, we're going to examine who they were today. But if the followers of Jesus could just have been kept to a manageable group, well, I think they would have been tolerated. Well, that's no different in our era or any other era. Christians have always been tolerated, provided they don't reach out. They might have even been admired if they just didn't evangelize and keep growing. You know, Open Doors is a ministry that highlights the plight of persecuted Christians today. You know, they give five reasons why Christians are being persecuted around the world. First, they say Jesus is competition for power. You know, in the end, Christians claim that only Jesus has ultimate lordship over them. Second, Christianity challenges the surrounding culture. All cultures have idols that demand submission. Believers will not bow to them. Third, Doing good means that we're also opposing evil. You know, that might mean standing up to corruption or crime. Fourth, a new identity in Christ is seen to be dangerous. You know, in many places, conversion to Christ means turning your back on your family. And fifth, Jesus is competition for other beliefs. That is, Christianity is seen as the social and cultural threat to the dominant belief system. Of course, Jesus said that he would build his church and the very gates of hell— that is, the devil's powerful city, meant to keep the devil's captives in check. The gates of that city would not withstand the church. And I say all of this because if we don't see this drama, we won't be able to make sense of the book of Acts. Up until this point in the book, the gospel of Jesus has been preached in Jerusalem, and it has attracted 3,000 followers. Now, it's difficult 2,000 years later to come up with an estimate of the population of Jerusalem at that time. I've seen estimates as low as 40,000, I think that's very low, to well over 100,000. And so a church of 3,000, even while it is a large church, it's still a contained church. But then something happened that really upset the power balance. You know, Peter and John have just healed a man who was lame from birth. And to make it worse, they did it at the temple courts. And Peter, as great crowds gathered, had just delivered his second sermon in the city. And it was persuasive. And so the response from the authority is is a growing sense of concern and a growing sense of alarm. And that might even lead to a violent reaction. So let's read Acts 4, 1 to 4. 
And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Notice that every time Peter preaches one of his outdoor sermons, the church grows exponentially. You know, his first sermon, which was preached on the day of Pentecost, resulted in the conversion and baptism of 3,000. But then, says Luke, as the church is being established, the Lord was adding daily those who were being saved. But now the church, if you count only the adult men, comes to 5,000. But you'd have to assume if you included the women and the children, the count would be somewhere at least at 20,000. That's sizable. It's now possible to see that if this activity is allowed to carry on without a considerable response, the Christian church will eventually capture the vast majority of Jerusalem. You know, Luke mentions that Peter and John are then arrested and that this is carried out by three groups of people. They're the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. So let's consider all three of those groups. The priest refers to the men of the tribe of Levi, and since the Levites are a very large group, you have to assume that the priests who act to arrest Peter and John, well, they represent the leadership of that group. And so we've got to assume that these men belonged to the Sanhedrin, which was the 70-member ruling council of Israel plus one, that is the high priest. And we have to remember that Jesus himself appeared before this group for trial, and it was these very men who had handed him over to Pilate to crucify him. Second, we're also told that the priests are joined by the captain of the temple. You know, that man would have been the second in rank after the high priest, who was both a religious and political leader in Israel, and who answered to and interacted with the Roman authority. The captain of the temple was charged with maintaining order in the temple. And the third group are the Sadducees. The Sanhedrin was composed of both Pharisees and Sadducees, but here we see it's the Sadducees who take the lead. And, well, that's because it was the Sadducees who were the leaders of the Sanhedrin. The chief priest was always a Sadducee. The Sadducees were the descendants of the Hasmoneans. They were originally a group of freedom fighters who in their day had defeated the ruling Syrians, had driven them out of Israel, and had given Israel her independence. Of course, at the time of Jesus, that independence had again been lost as the Romans now ruled the land. But if you had asked the Sadducees if they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, they would have said no. See, they believed that the Messianic age began when their forefathers, those freedom fighters I spoke of, the Hasmoneans, they gained Jewish independence from Syria. So for them, the Messiah was the ideal of independence. It wasn't a person. And so I hope you get the idea. The Sadducees represent a rich, ruling aristocracy. It seems very likely, from what I understand of them, that they accepted only the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible as scripture. So they denied also the resurrection of the dead or the life to come. And so for them, wealth, power, privilege were the enjoyment of life. And if you think of them as wealthy, ruling, liberal theologians, well, you're not far from understanding them correctly. Uh, you can see why they so vehemently opposed Jesus. You know, the deal the Sadducees had made with the Roman authority, well, it ensured that 
their position of privilege would continue. And so they had conspired with the Romans to put that troublemaker, Jesus, to death. But now the followers of Jesus number 20,000 people in the city, and they're still growing. And so they order Peter and John arrested, and Luke says that they're greatly annoyed. That's because Peter and John are preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So you can see why they're so annoyed. They don't believe in that. And if you think about what Open Doors said, the five reasons why Christians are persecuted, well, we can easily see all five of those reasons in play here. They're more than annoyed. They're in a murderous mood by now. So let's keep reading Acts 4, verses 5 to 7. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? You know, at the outset, it's not hard to see why this would have been intimidating for Peter and John. Now, when they're gathered, I mean, we're to read this as the Sanhedrin gathering, the 70 men plus the high priest. You know, in this group, the Sadducees dominated. The high priest is very much like, you know, a prime minister or a president of a nation. And the rest of the rulers are like the Supreme Court. Luke says that Annas was there, and he had been the high priest from AD 6 to 15. Caiaphas was there. He was the present high priest, and he was the son-in-law of Annas. Power stayed in the family. And Caiaphas was also high priest when Jesus was condemned. Next was a man named John who would become the next high priest. So I hope a picture is forming in your mind. These are the men of power. The others in the Sanhedrin did what these men wanted. These are the genuine power players. And so when they ask, by what name are you doing this? The apostles, Peter and John, are completely aware who's asking. These are the most powerful men in the nation. These are the men who have already condemned Jesus. What would you say? Peter and John seem to know what to say. During the month of August, we'll be unveiling a slightly new visual look for the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. This change came as a result of a deep search into a a 60-plus year legacy of ministry and a determination to continue our commitment to offering trustworthy Bible teaching. To celebrate the past and embrace the future of Bible teaching, Dr. Neufeld will be airing a brand new five-message series entitled Bible Teaching You Can Trust. This is a biblical study of the key elements that indicate the Bible teaching you're listening to is trustworthy. This will air on this radio station, online, podcast, and in our mobile app. But we also want to offer you the series on CD as our gift for free. All you need to do is call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And if Bible teaching you can trust is something you value, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift of support. Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. I'm reading Acts 4, verses 8 to 12. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, 
by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love that Luke tells us that just before Peter began to speak, that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's get back for a moment to that time when Jesus met with his disciples and told them that they'd be handed over to the courts and flogged in the synagogues. Well, during that time when Jesus was explaining their mission to them, along with the opposition that they'd have to endure, he added one very precious promise. He said here, and I'm quoting him from Matthew 10, 19 to 20, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Spirit of your Father, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit has a unique ministry in the Trinity. His role is to take the spotlight and shine it on the Father and on the Son. Well, nonetheless, the promise was that when you're put in this incredibly pressure-filled and dangerous environment, well, don't you worry, the Holy Spirit will be prompting you and directing you in what to say. Luke, who's researched this moment quite well, tells us that just before Peter spoke, he was instantly filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't already indwelling Peter. I mean, he was. But as we read through Acts, we become aware that individuals who are indwelt by the Spirit are suddenly filled with the Holy Spirit, resulting in extraordinary boldness to speak in the name of Jesus. Again, we're left to remember how different a man Peter once was. When that slave girl approached him while Jesus was being tried by that very same Sanhedrin, and the slave girl asked him whether or not Peter had been one of the followers of this man Jesus, he had denied Jesus. He was so intimidated. But now everything has changed. That's what the Holy Spirit does, and that's the point of application for all of us. We need not fear opposition. Instead, we need to live in expectation. It was in Philippians, as Paul was facing the Roman tribunal, he said he was going to rejoice. He knew that in that hour, the Holy Spirit would help him to say just the right words. Let's look at what Peter says. He starts by asking if he's being examined because of an act of kindness done to a cripple. (laughs) It's an amazing way to start because in an instant, he has the Sanhedrin on its heels. But he doesn't wait for them to respond. He simply goes on. And essentially, I guess, he incriminates himself. He says, I want you to hear this. Indeed, I want the entire nation of Israel to hear what I'm about to say. That lame man was healed in the name of Jesus. And by the way, just so that we're crystal clear on this matter, yeah, that's the very same Jesus whom you crucified. Now, in this case, you know, this matter couldn't be more forceful. Just a few months earlier, it was you in this chamber that ordered Jesus crucified. And then, with his eyes trained on the Sadducees in that house, he adds, yes, this same Jesus, God raised him from the dead. And how's that for a group of people who don't believe in the resurrection? And yet, this man you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, it was he who healed this crippled man. And then Peter appeals to Scripture, Psalm 118, verse 22 was a well-known psalm because all the pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem at the time of religious 
festivals, they'd sing this. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then about this building stone that you threw out, Peter adds, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, a great many people, as you know, struggle with these words. Understand this. In ancient Israel, many rabbis taught that salvation from damnation, the damnation that would come at the coming of the day of the Lord, well, salvation can only be achieved by keeping the law. Do what God wants you to do and you're going to be saved. Peter says, look, you can't be saved that way. There is no other name. It is Jesus. Christians, hear me. Don't be ashamed of the exclusive nature of your faith. Please understand that when it comes to saving you from the final judgment, I ask you, what other name would you suggest can save us in that hour? I know. Some religions say that God will hold a pair of scales in his hands, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're going to make it. But in that case, you can never know until you actually get there. In that case, you're hoping that your own name saves you. Does that sound reasonable? Listen, no one can save themselves by their own acts. Do you think God is so little and that his righteousness is such a small matter that your acts can impress him? No, you can't save yourself. God's not that small. But here's the good news. There is one name that can save us. You know, for me, it's not surprising that there is just one name. I mean, what is shocking is that there is even one name, that God should so love us that he should give us a name. And now Peter shows no fear, no intimidation, but is confidently and boldly and assertively spoken of Jesus to this hostile people group. And then he goes on to say, and I'm reading here verses 13 to 18, and when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So you might think that Peter and John might seize on this as an opportunity. I mean, perhaps there's reason for negotiation here. I mean, after all, it's remarkable that at this moment, they're going to get away unpunished. They're going to be let go. You know, perhaps Peter and John could have said, okay, since you're going to let us go, perhaps now is the time, you know, to make some agreement with you. You know, maybe we'll speak of Jesus in our own meetings, but not in the open forum of the temple. You know, can we find middle ground? But notice Peter and John's response to the charge from the Supreme Court in the land that says to them, you can't speak publicly about Jesus. Instead of negotiating, Peter and John answer even without an hesitation. Verses 19 and 20, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. You know, this text has often been used by Christians when speaking about our relationship to the government. As a general rule, Christians obey governing authorities. Romans 13 commands all Christians to be subject to the governing authorities. 
Indeed, the Bible warns us not to resist their authority. Rather, we are to view their authority as an authority that is instituted by God. We are to believe that God has placed governments in power in order to restrain evil and to reward righteousness. But Romans 13 is not intended as the last word on the subject. We live in a fallen and a sinful world, and sin is insidious. It not only perverts human beings, it perverts justice, and it perverts government. Indeed, I think it's safe to say that Christians have an impulse in which we seek to be submissive to the government that is in power wherever we can. But when the government tells us to call Caesar Lord, or when the government says that we must honor a behavior or a lifestyle that is not in accord with God's law, or when a government says it's illegal to propagate the faith, we're not going to seek to tear that government down. We're we're not anarchists. We're not revolutionaries. But we would say to all governments, we do seek to honor you and to build you up. We even seek to pray for you consistently with sincere hearts, and we are filled with gratitude for your leadership. But should you tell us you can't win people to Christ, we will say in clear and unmistakable terms, we must obey God, not you. Verse 21 to 22, And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. And the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And with that, the gospel advances, and God's people determine we will not fear. Those of us who read this now, let's be of one mind, shall we? Church of Jesus Christ, in this hour, have no fear. Do what Christ calls you to do in the power of the Spirit and rest in assurance in Him. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this. You know, I think it's true to say that in the Western world, we can either become complacent about our faith or, or easily intimidated not to speak out, but, but not so much in the developing countries of the world. What accounts for that? Uh, you know, it, I don't think it's as easy as simply saying that, you know, we've got lots, they have little. I think it's um, when you have little, uh, you put a greater amount of confidence in the resources of God. And we in the uh, developed and wealthy world uh, tend to put our confidence in the resources that we know are there in our culture. And I think we trust less in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to start trusting more. Thanks, John. And, And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue in our series, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Our world is confusing. Every place we turn, there are new rules and protocols. The daily news can be baffling and disturbing. And we can clearly see that there are people suffering from fear, not knowing who they can trust or or where they can find truth. Our world has never needed us to be clear on what is foundational and what is true. As a friend of Back to the Bible Canada, we know that you care about trustworthy, verse-by-verse Bible teaching. Together with you, anyone seeking to know and better understand the God of the Bible and the significance of a relationship with Jesus will find accessible, relevant, and trustworthy Bible teaching through a dynamic range of mediums and resources. To know more or to offer a gift to support this cause, 
Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of Dr. Newfeld's series, Bible Teaching You Can Trust.